our legal teams and national security staff wrestled daily with how to set up stronger judicial and congressional oversight for our CT efforts and how to meet our obligations for transparency without tipping off New York Times reading terrorists. Rather than continue with what looked to the world like a bunch of ad hoc foreign policy decisions, we decided I'd deliver two speeches related to our anti-terrorism efforts. The first intended mainly for domestic consumption would insist that Americans' long-term national security depended on fidelity to our Constitution and the rule of law, acknowledging that in the immediate aftermath of 9 we'd sometimes fallen short of those standards and laying out how many administration how laying out how my administration would approach counterterrorism going forward. The second scheduled to be given in Cairo would address a global audience, in particular the world's Muslims. I had promised to deliver a speech like this during the campaign, and although with everything else going on, some of my team suggested canceling it, I told Ram that backing out wasn't an option, quote, we may not change public attitudes in these countries overnight, close quote, I said, but, quote, but if we don't squarely address the sources of tension between the West and the Muslim world and describe what peaceful coexistence might look like, we'll be fighting wars in the region for the next 30 years, close quote.
to help write both speeches, I enlisted the immense talents of Ben Rhodes, my 31-year-old NSC speechwriter and soon-to-be Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications. If Brennan represented someone who could act as a conduit between me and the national security apparatus I'd inherited, Ben connected me to my younger, more idealistic self, raised in Manhattan by a liberal Jewish mother and a Texas lawyer father, both of whom had held government jobs under Lyndon Johnson. He had been pursuing a master's degree in fiction writing at NYU when 911 happened. Fueled by patriotic anger, Ben had headed to D.C. in search of a way to serve, eventually finding a job with former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton and helping to write the influential 2006 Iraq study group report. Short and prematurely balding with dark brows that seemed perpetually furrowed, Ben had been thrown into the deep end of the pool immediately asked by our understaffed campaign to crank out position papers, press releases, and speech major speeches. There'd been some growing pains in Berlin, for example. He and Fobbs had landed on a beautiful German phrase, quote, a community of faith, close quote, to tie together the themes of my one big pre-election speech on foreign soil only to discover a couple of hours before I was to go on stage that the phrase had been used in one of Hitler's first addresses to the Reichstag. Quote, probably not the effect you're going for. 
close quote. Reggie Love deadpanned as I burst into laughter and Ben's face turned bright red. Despite his youth, Ben wasn't shy about weighing in on policy or contradicting my more senior advisors with a sharp intelligence and a stubborn earnestness that was leavened with a self-deprecating humor and healthy sense of irony. He had a writer's sensibility, one I shared, and it formed the basis for a relationship not unlike the one I developed with Fobbs. I could spend an hour with Ben dictating my arguments on a subject and count on getting a draft a few days later that not only captured my voice but also channeled something more essential my bedrock view of the world and sometimes even my heart. Together, we knocked out the counterterrorism speech fairly quickly, though Ben reported that each time he sent a draft to the Pentagon or CIA for comments, it would come back with edits, red lines drawn through any word, proposal, or characterization deemed even remotely controversial or critical of practices like torture. Not so subtle acts of resistance from the career folks, many of whom had come to Washington with the Bush administration. I told Ben to ignore most of their suggestions. On May 21st, I delivered the speech at the National Archives, standing beside original copies of the Declaration of Independence the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Just in case anybody inside or outside the government missed the point.
the Muslim speech as we took to calling the second major address was trickier beyond the negative portrayals of terrorists and oil shakes found on news broadcasts or in the movies. Most Americans knew little about Islam. Meanwhile, surveys show that Muslims around the world believed the United States was hostile toward their religion and that our Middle East policy was based not on an interest in improving people's lives, but rather on maintaining oil supplies, killing terrorists, in protecting Israel.
The quote Muslim speech, close quote, <coughs> as we took to calling the second major address, was trickier beyond the negative portrayals of terrorists and oil shakes found on news broadcasts or in the movies most Americans knew little about Islam. Meanwhile, surveys showed that Muslims around the world believed 
the United States was hostile toward their religion and that our Middle East policy was based not on an interest in improving people's lives, but rather on maintaining oil supplies, killing terrorists, and protecting Israel. Given this divide, I told Ben that the focus of our speech had to be less about outlining new policies and more geared toward helping the two sides understand each other. That meant recognizing the extraordinary contributions of Islamic civilizations in the advancement of mathematics, science, and art, and acknowledging the role colonialism had played in some of the Middle East's ongoing struggles. It meant admitting past U.S. indifferences toward corruption and repression in the region and our complicity in the overthrow of Iran's democratically, democratically elected government during the Cold War. as well as acknowledging the searing humiliations endured by Palestinians living in occupied territory. Hearing such basic history from the mouth of a U.S. president would catch many people off guard, I figured, and perhaps open their minds to other hard truths that the Islamic fundamentalism that had come to dominate so much of the Muslim world was incompatible with the openness and tolerance that fueled modern progress that too often Muslim leaders ginned up grievances against the West in order to distract from their own failures that a Palestinian state would be delivered only through negotiation and compromise rather than incitements to violence and anti-Semitism and that 
No society would truly succeed while systematically repressing its women. We were still working on the speech when we landed in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where I was scheduled to meet with King Abdullah ibn Abdul Aziz al Saud, custodian of the two holy mosques in Mecca and Medina, and the most powerful leader in the Arab world. I'd never set foot in the kingdom before, and at the lavish airport welcoming ceremony, the first thing I noticed was the complete absence of women or children on the tarmac or in the terminals, just rows of black-mustached men in military uniforms or the traditional thab and gutra. I had expected as much, of course. That's how things were done in the Gulf. But as I climbed into the beast, I was still struck by how oppressive and sad such a segregated such a segregated place felt as if I'd suddenly entered a world where all the colors had been muted. The king had arranged for me and my team to stay at his horse ranch outside Riyadh and as our motorcade and police escort sped down a wide, spotless highway under a blanched sun, the massive, unadorned office buildings, mosques, retail outlets, and luxury car showrooms quickly giving way to scrabbly desert, I thought how little the Islam of Saudi Arabia resembled the version of the faith I'd witnessed as a child while living in Indonesia, in Jakarta in the 1960s and 70s. Islam had occupied roughly the same place in that nation's in that nation's culture as Christianity did in the average American city or town relevant but not dominant the Muslims called to prayer punctuated the days, weddings and funerals followed the faith's prescribed rituals. Activities slowed down during 
fasting months. And pork might be hard to find on a restaurant's menu. Otherwise, people live their lives with women riding Vespas in short skirts and high heels on their way to office jobs. Boys and girls chasing kites and long-haired youths dancing to the Beatles and the Jackson 5 at the local disco. Muslims were largely indistinguishable from the Christians, Hindus, or college-educated non-believers like my stepfather as they crammed onto Jakarta's overcrowded buses, filled theater seats at the latest kung fu movie, smoked outside roadside taverns, or strolled down the cacophonous streets. The overtly pious were scarce in those days, if not the object of derision, then at least set apart like Jehovah's Witnesses handing out pamphlets in a Chicago neighborhood. Saudi Arabia had always been different. Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, the nation's first monarch and the father of King Abdullah, had begun his reign in 1932 and been deeply wedded to the teachings of the 18th century cleric Muhammad bin Abdal Wahab. Abdal Wahab's followers claimed to practice an uncorrupted version of Islam, viewing Shiite and Sufi Islam as heretical and observing religious tenets that were considered conservative even by the standards of traditional Arab culture. Public segregation of the sexes, avoidance of contact with non-Muslims, and the rejection of secular art, music, and other pastimes that might distract from the faith. Following the post-World War I collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Abdul Aziz consolidated control over rival Arab tribes and founded modern 
Saudi Arabia in accordance with these Wahhabist principles. His conquest of Mecca, birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the destination for all Muslim pilgrims seeking to fulfill the five tenets of Islam as well as the holy city of Medina provided him with a platform from which to exert an outsized influence over Islamic doctrine around the world. The discovery of Saudi oil fields and the untold wealth that came from it extended that influence even further, but it also exposed the contradictions of trying to sustain such ultra-conservative practices in the midst of a rapidly modernizing world. Abdulaziz needed Western technology, know-how, and distribution channels to fully exploit the kingdom's newfound treasure and formed an alliance with the United States to obtain modern weapons and secure the Saudi oil fields against rival states. Members of the extended royal family retained Western firms to invest their vast holdings and sent their children to Cambridge and Harvard to learn modern business practices. Young princes discovered the attractions of French villas, London nightclubs, and Vegas gaming rooms. I've wondered sometimes whether there was a point when the Saudi monarchy might have reassessed its religious commitments, acknowledging that Wahhabist fundamentalism, like all forms of religious absolutism, was incompatible with modernity and used its wealth and authority to steer Islam onto a gentler, more tolerant course. Probably not. The old ways were too deeply embedded, and as tensions with fundamentalists grew in the late 1970s, the royals may have accurately concluded that religious reform would lead inevitably to uncomfortable 
political and economic reforms as well. Instead, in order to avoid the kind of revolution that had established an Islamic Republic in nearby Iran, the Saudi monarchy, monarchy struck a bargain with its most hardline clerics in exchange for legitimizing the House of Saud's absolute control over the nation's economy and government and for being willing to look the other way when members of the royal family succumbed to certain indiscretions, the clerics and religious police were granted authority to regulate daily social interactions, determine what was taught in schools, and mete out punishments to those who violated religious decrees. From public floggings to the removal of hands to actual crucifixions. Perhaps more important, the royal family steered billions of dollars to these same clerics to build mosques and madrasas across the Sunni world. As a result, from Pakistan to Egypt to Mali to Indonesia, fundamentalism grew stronger. Tolerance for different Islamic practices grew weaker. Drives to impose Islamic governance grew louder and calls for a purging of Western influences from Islamic territory through violence if necessary grew more frequent. The Saudi monarchy could take satisfaction in having averted an Iranian-style revolution both within its borders and among its Gulf partners, although maintaining such orders still required a repressive internal security service and broad media censorship. But it had done so at the price of accelerating a transnational fundamentalist movement that despised Western influences, remained suspicious of Saudi dalliances with the United States, and served as a petri dish for the radicalization of many young Muslims, men like Osama bin Laden, the son of a prominent Saudi businessman close to the royal family.
and the 15 Saudi nationals who, along with four other, four others, planned and carried out the September 11th attacks. We're out of time, but we'll continue on the next segment.